job in keeping movements in chapters because the chapters and verses were never really there when they, these letters were written, right? I mean, those were, all, those were added later. <clears throat> and so sometimes a chapter will pick up in the middle of a thought or whatever, but those were added later. But, but Ruth actually does a really great job of being chaptered up into these kind of perfect little movements. And so we're spending three weeks on each movement because it's a narrative. We can't just kind of go verse by verse and we have to understand these kind of movements in their context. And so we've been looking at chapter one for the past two weeks and we're going to close it out today and take a look at some bigger themes, I think, that God has for our life. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Ruth chapter one. Um, each week we're reading the whole chapter. So we'll read the whole chapter for the third time this week. And then we're going to start in chapter two next week and we'll kind of read that whole chapter. And that way we can look at this book and it's these whole sections. And if you come re- regularly, you're going to hear this story over and over and over again. And the repetition in God's word, I think, is really powerful. I've probably read this book, oh, I don't know, 100 plus times. Easy. Just trying to get ready for and thinking through what we're going to be teaching. And every time I open it, even this past Friday when I was spending time wrestling with it, God was just opening my eyes to new things. And so I think repetition in God's word gives our heart opportunity for God to speak into us in new ways. So um, don't, uh, if you've heard chapter one twice already, trust me. There's more in there um, that, uh, that we're going to get to today. So let's take a moment before we open it up together. Let's take a moment and let's pray. And uh, then we'll dive into chapter one for the last time um, in this study. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this incredible weather. I thank you for the beauty of today, Father, that we get to, to wake up and draw breath, Father, that every breath that we breathe is a gift from you. Lord, we remember this morning that we are just one small community in a kind of global community of believers that are gathered today. And not just right at this time period, but over this sort of time period that makes up Sundays and Saturdays and worship times for churches. And Lord, we remember our friends in China and in Africa and Guatemala, Father, in uh, Serbia and Bosnia and India, places that we support missionaries. God, and where the church is huddled in underground places. God, we recognize that we have this incredible freedom to gather in this place, but Lord, we are just a small kind of just a tiny little speck of this greater picture of global community. God, we pray for the churches in the city. We pray that as they gather this morning, you would move in people's hearts. You would stir them to worship. We pray that people would meet you for the first time. Lord, we pray that we would understand that we are part of something so much greater than ourselves. So, Lord, help us have a heartbeat for the global community of Christ's followers. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. We ask you to move in your word. Teach our hearts, God. I truly believe in an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Your word is living and active. It is sharper than an double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. God, you are, you are alive in your word. And so, God, teach our hearts this morning. Take a moment and just ask God to, to speak to you this morning through his word. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We do this every single Sunday. Just pray for somebody else. Be in the habit, be a prayer for other people. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. We ask that you would speak to our hearts through your truth. And we ask this in the risen name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So Ruth chapter 1, for those who've been coming for the past few weeks, this should sound relatively familiar. So hopefully you can find yourself kind of catching up and going, yeah, yeah, I I heard some of these themes. If you're here for the very first time, you're going to get a whole glimpse. So this is what's unfolding in this story um, some 3,000 years ago. In those days, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. 
They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judah. And they went to Moab to live there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other named Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left with her two sons and her, without her two sons and without her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living and set out to the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown to your dead and to me. And may the Lord grant each of you that you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. And she said, and she said to her, and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought I was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again, and then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will also be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on their way until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So we've read that first chapter multiple times. And it's important to understand the beginning and the end. And that's why I keep reading it, because we can't just pick up the last five verses without understanding the depth of what's kind of happened in the first 19 verses. And it's an incredible story. It's a story of a family um, that is kind of on a journey together, basically looking after themselves. God had provided the land, kind of provided the promised land to people as a promise to them, as a gift to them. And this story unfolds in the time of Judges, which is an incredibly dark time in the history of Israel. People were living according to their own way, and God had given them promised land, but they were rebelling from God, and God used famine and things like that in the Bible to correct his people, and they would cry out for rescue, and God would come down and rescue them. And it was a kind of a pattern that was unfolding in this 400-year period of the Judges. Well, right in the middle of that period, we find this famine hits the land of Bethlehem, the area of Judah, which is the southern part of the promised land. And this family, led by a man named Elimelech, whose name means my God and my king, which is ironic because Israel really had no king. God was supposed to be their king, but the people were living like he wasn't. And and this man takes his family and his two sons, Malon and Kilion, whose names mean dying and failing and sickness and weakling and just kind of a mess. And they take Naomi, the wife, and they leave. They up and leave God's promised land because there's no food. They walk out of God's promise in a land named Moab. And the Israelites didn't like the Moabs. They weren't allowed to worship together. The Moabs worshipped a God named Chemosh. They came kind of from the wicked family a lot. Long kind of historical story there. But they didn't, they didn't really get along. Uh, the law forbid them to even worship together. And they go to this land of Moab. And as soon as they get there, pretty quick thereafter, Elimelech, the father, he dies. We don't really know from what. We just know that he dies. 
And we know the two sons then marry Moabite women, right? Which wasn't expressively, kind of expressly forbidden, but it was really frowned upon because these two countries, not only did they not get along, but they couldn't worship together. And the Moabites didn't even worship Yahweh, the true God. They worshiped Chemosh, which was this false God. And so these sons remarry these Moabite women, which was kind of a mess. They stay married for a little while. And then we hear in our story that the sons die. We don't really know why. We don't know what happens, but we know that they die. And Naomi is left with these two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orphan Ruth. Well, about that time, she hears that God had come to the aid of his people in Israel. In other words, God had lifted the famine. God was coming to the rescue. The people had cried out. They had turned from their wicked ways, and God was giving food. He was giving harvest from the land again. And so Naomi, broken, without any place to go, a widow, without sons or without a husband, says, we've got to go back. So she prepares her daughters-in-law, and they set out on this road. And they get about, I don't know, ten steps down the road, and she stops, and she says... That's it. You can't come with me. I can't do this to you. Go back to your mother's houses. Go back to your families. Look, there's hope for you there. You can remarry. You can, you can find a husband. Somebody can provide for you. But if you come with me, my awful life, if I bring you with me, we're destined for nothing. Emptiness, brokenness, failure. There's nothing left for me. So they all kind of, they both of them kind of say, we're, we're not leaving you. And they begin to weep out loud. They've gone through so much together. They've walked through tragedy and struggle. They've lost their sons. They've lost their husbands. They've, they've lost this sort of God, they got this deep sense of connection, and they're weeping on the road. Then Naomi urges them. She says, look, here's the deal. Even if I were to get married and have sons, what are you going to do, wait around on them? Are you going to wait for them to grow up so you can marry them? No, look, even if there was hope for me, which there's not, you're not going to wait that long. So she just go. So it says that Orphan decided that she's going to go, and she goes to head back, and, and Ruth clings to her. She just clung to her with this, this sort of white-knuckled grip. And, and Naomi says, look, follow your sister-in-law. Leave me. And then Ruth has this sort of really famous speech that we explored last week, which is where she goes, listen, I'm not going. Where you go, I'll go, right? Where you live, I'll live. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. I will stay there forever. And it says that when Naomi realized that Ruth was not joking around, she was all business, she said, fine. And then they started off on the road back to Bethlehem. And that's kind of where we've been up to today. And then today, we discover the end of this journey. So there's two women on the road back to Bethlehem, which surprisingly takes a really short time in our story. Our author had spent 13 or kind of really 18 verses preparing us for this journey. And then he gives about three words for this sort of 70, 55 to 70 mile journey that these two women would have made by foot with everything that they owned. It says that they started back on the road that leads to Bethlehem. And when they arrived, the whole town was stirred. The whole town was stirred. And the woman, women in town became, came around and began to exclaim, is this Naomi? Now that word stirred there in the Hebrew is a really interesting word because it kind of the idea of stirred for us is just sort of like, a, I don't know, a little bit of a movement, like the waters rippled. But, but really the Hebrew word is the word wadahum, which kind of carries with it this connotation of chaos, like excitement, um, utter kind of just kind of going nuts. Like the whole town was not stirred, it was a buzz, it was moving. Because I'll tell you this, it was a huge deal when Elimelech took his family and they left. They just up and went. And everybody was like, I can't believe you're leaving. God said he, you know, was going to do this, and there's going to, you know, but, uh, and they're arguing or whatever. But Elimelech goes, no, look, we're out of here. There's no food. And the whole town was talking about how Elimelech up and left. Well, now Naomi comes back, but she doesn't have Elimelech with her, and she doesn't have her sons with her. Instead, she's got this stranger on her arm, and the whole town is a buzz. And they're kind of saying, is this really Naomi? I mean, it's been 10 plus years. It wasn't like it would be today where you could call or, or talk or, you know, whatever, get on the computer. You just couldn't. You didn't know where they were. You didn't know if they were alive or dead. Here comes Naomi wandering back to town. And the whole town is abuzz with excitement. I can't believe it. 
You know, it's like chaos. Is this really Naomi? And so they say, is this really Naomi? Now, we've learned a lot about everybody else's names in this kind of story. We've got, you know, Elimelech, my God, my king, and, and Malon, which means weakness or, or uh, failings. And then we have sickness and dying, which is killing. But Naomi, or the, um, what's her name? I just said it. Naomi, yeah. Naomi, her name means lovely or pleasant. That's what it means. And if you're getting the idea that names are really important in the story, they're actually really important in the Old Testament. Names were not just labels of individuality, like they are today, right? Names were deeply meaningful. In fact, you named a child, and that child was then presumed to live into that name. So the idea would be is that you named your your child, and then their character took on the qualities of that name. So their name became a description of, of who they would be, right? And, and so it was really important, and it connected them to family. And so names are really powerful, which is totally lost in our Western culture. But nonetheless, names are powerful. And Naomi's name means lovely. It means pleasant. And they cry out, can this be lovely? And she says what? She says, don't call me lovely. Call me Mara. And the word Mara in Hebrew means bitter. She says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty, El Shaddai, which is the, the Hebrew name for God that means like all-powerful, Right, The Almighty, all in control, El Shaddai has brought this calamity upon me. She's not really kind of making a snarky comment. She's actually changing her name. She's not really kind of going, hey, look, you know, don't call me lovely, call me bitter. She's actually saying, look, you want to know the truth about my life? I come back to you empty. I left full. I'm coming back empty. Don't call me lovely anymore. My life is not lovely. It is actually incredibly bitter because of what God has done to me. Now, she's alluded to this over the per, uh, of her conversation with uh, Orpha and Ruth before, but this is the first time she ever really blames God for it. God has done this to me. And she says, I went away full, but I'm coming back empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. Don't call me Naomi. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She just basically, in a, in a movement of honesty, blames God and just says, I went away full. In other words, I had a family. I had a husband. I followed him. I had children. I had hope. I had a future. I went away full and I'm coming back absolutely broken. Quit calling me lovely. Change my name. Call me bitter, which seems a little extreme, but names are really important. She's like, I don't even deserve to be called that. The Lord has afflicted me. And so then the author ends this movement by saying, and so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, reminding us that she's a foreigner, she's a Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was upon them, or was beginning. Now, a couple of things. That last statement, that barley harvest statement, kind of brings to a close this first movement. And the author does it for a couple of reasons. One, he's demonstrating that the barley harvest really took place in the spring, and it was a, a time of incredible celebration. Oftentimes in harvesting and in, in agrarian cultures was a time of celebration. They would have huge parties, and they would, they would sing, and they would dance, and it was a, a way of thanking God right? That he had provided for them. And the barley harvest was a huge celebration. It was several weeks in the spring and was accompanied by feasts and celebrations and singing. And so it was an exciting time. And you kind of couple that with the train wreck that's coming in town that is Naomi, right? You've got this bitter disaster of a woman right here, and you've got this incredible exciting time. And the author's kind of pinning those things against each other, right? You've got the depression and struggle of Naomi versus the celebration. It also signaled the fact that God had come to the aid of his people. The famine was over, right? Ten years ago, there was a famine. Now that God has lifted the famine and the harvest is happening, rains have come, the land is full, and it's a time of celebration and rejoicing. The author is also kind of giving us a tiny little foreshadow 
that something really good is about to happen. Right? It's, just a, it's just a little hanging piece. It's sort of a, a statement that's very much pregnant with meaning, right? Something good is about to happen. The barley harvest was beginning, and that first movement draws to a close. Now, the first week, we really spent time exploring Naomi's misery. We talked about the, the incredible struggle that she had walked through, from the leaving of her homeland and her friends and her family to the death of her husband. We talked about her sons marrying Moabite women and what that meant. We talked about the, women, the fact that those women were barren for 10 years. They couldn't have children. We talked about what that meant. We talked about her kind of walking through the death of her sons and then hearing that God had come to the aid of his people and she was stuck in Moab and now the people were experiencing blessing and sort of the tragedy and tragedy upon, that had kind of happened upon her life. We talked about Naomi's misery and we sort of left a lot of things hanging there that we talked about the truth of misery and the difficulty of walking through it and what distress brings about then last week we sort of looked at that middle section where God was doing something very significant in this story he was introducing us to a couple of things one he was reminding us that Naomi was absolutely hopeless and if anything was great was going to happen it was because God was getting ready to make a move Right? We talked about the fact that the author was introducing us to a really important principle buried in there. This idea of kinsman kind of redeemership, which we're going to learn about. It comes out of Deuteronomy. Where when Naomi says, what am I going to do? Have some sons and you're going to marry them? I can't do that because that principle in there is that when a, someone in the family died and left a widowed wife, the brother or the nearest relative would then marry her to carry on the family name. It's kind of the idea of a kinsman redeemership. We're going to learn about it in the next chapter. But the, it's kind of a weird deal. But, you know, you, you know, you think about doing that now, it's kind of strange. But back in the day, it was a big deal because family lineage was really important. So you had the responsibility as a, as a brother to marry your brother's widow to carry on the family name. And the author's introducing us to this kind of strange Israelite custom because it's going to come into play in a huge way in this book. And then he's also kind of laying the foundation for this character of Ruth. And we talked last week expressly about what Ruth was where Naomi lacked. And so now the big picture for me as I start looking at these last five verses is what do we walk away with from this book? I mean from this kind of movement. What do we, what do we gather here and say, man, these are huge takeaways. Well, I spent some time really wrestling with this and I came up with like 13. And so I've narrowed it down to seven, and then I narrowed it down again to four. So here's the deal, is that there's probably as many as there are people in this room what we could walk away with this story from. So this is not the end all. It's not like I look at this and they're like, oh, there's three great little points and you're gonna do a poem at the I mean, it's just, here it is. These are the things that I think God is lifting up for us to pay attention to. Now, there's probably more. But this is kind of what I wanna do this morning, is I want you to see these four things, because I think these four things are game changers for the story. And if we really apply them to our life or let them soak into our heart, they're gonna change us, because they're really powerful. So these four little movements or big kind of broad movements in this first chapter are, are this. The first one is this, is that I think we're called to be honest with God. Okay? Now that may not sound like much at first, but listen to me. Here's the deal. If Naomi is anything, she's brutally honest. Right? I mean, she doesn't really kind of hide behind her words. She is completely honest with people. She's completely honest with God. I mean, she says it to Ruth and she's like, what am I going to do? Have more children? Look, my life is a mess. It is more bitter for me than for you. My life is a train wreck. So leave me. I mean, she's not kind of sugarcoating it for her daughters-in-law. She's just laying it out there. She also doesn't sugarcoat it for anybody. She walks back into Bethlehem. She goes, quit calling me lovely. I don't even want to hear that name anymore. It's not who I am. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because why? Because God's hand is against me. El Shaddai, the powerful one, has come against me, and my life is a loss. If Naomi is anything, she's brutally honest. We actually see this played out a lot in Scripture. We see people like Jonah, Job, 
the psalmist, Jeremiah, they are incredibly honest with God. They just sort of throw out there the fact that they're angry, broken, fearful, upset. And they just put it out there. And as I was looking through this and thinking through this this week, I thought, I'm very seldom really honest with God. I mean, I mean let's be truthful. I, I tell God in my prayer time a lot of what I think he wants to hear. Right? Because here's the thing, and I think a lot of us are that way. We're not honest about our fears and failures and failings. We're not honest about the things that we want to run and hide from. We're not honest when we're angry. Why? Because when we say those things out loud, when we utter them even in our prayer time, they become very real, and that's petrifying. And so we tell God what we think he wants to hear because we don't actually want to say audibly out loud the things that we're feeling. Because one, we think it demonstrates a lack of faith, or two, we just... We don't want to be that real with ourselves. And so because we're not, we're very seldom real with God. And I think it sets us up for for barriers and failings in our spiritual life. Look, here's the thing. It's not like God doesn't know. God knows everything. We're going to learn that in just a second. God knows your thoughts. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows everything you need before you need it. It is not a surprise to him that you are mad that you are angry, that you are hurt, that you are broken, that you are running, that you are bitter, that you are resentful, that you are whatever. God is not like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Why didn't you? God knows. We know this. But we're petrified of it. But I think if we're brutally honest with God, we lay those things out there and then we ask him to change our heart. Ask him to come and rescue. God loves to come to the rescue and aid of his people. I deeply believe that God waits for us to cry out for him and just say, God, I am so angry this is happening. God, I am so bitter. God, I have failed you. Or God, this is what I've done. And I open and I bear my honest heart before God. And I say, God, change me. Like, you know I'm already feeling this way. You know I'm feeling burned out and tired. You know I don't want to go. You know I don't want to do this. You know I don't love my life right now. Change my heart. You know I'm not content. You know I want more. You know I'm doing this. You know I'm living in this sin. You know I'm doing these things. God, you already know. So just hear me say, I I need you. I need you. I think that we're called to bear our honest heart before God. Now, Now, I'm not holding Naomi up as a sort of commendable, perfect person. I told you last week, look, she's not the example of how to live during suffering. But I don't blame Naomi, right? I told you this. If I were living Naomi's life, and I had lost every person in my family, and I had watched God literally feel like walk out on me in my time of greatest need, I would be just as bitter. I would watch my faith crumble like a house of cards as well, Right? I mean, the truth is, so I'm not blaming Naomi. I, I lifted up Ruth as an example of how to live in the middle of that, but, but I don't blame her. That's too easy. The reality is we're so much like her. We just don't say it out loud. That's what I find refreshing somewhat about Naomi is that she's just honest. And I feel like that our Christian subculture is covered in dishonesty. Right? I say this a lot. We come into church, we wear our masks, we put on our kind of best look. We don't let people into the kind of fear and struggle and disasters that we really are. And we look around the room and we wonder why everybody else has it together, but my life's the only one that is falling apart. You know, husbands and wives, we walk in the room holding hands, but we fought the whole way here in the car. The disaster that our kids were, burned waffles, this, I forgot to get up, all these things are happening. But we come in here, we don't want anybody to know that. And I talked to somebody a couple of years ago who, six weeks They were jobless, led to the loss of their home, living in their car, didn't tell a soul because they were afraid, afraid to be honest about it. They didn't come to church with us, but they were a dear friend of mine. And I said, why didn't you tell me? And he said, "I, I couldn't even bring myself to say it. See, here's the thing. We're not honest with God first. 
with the community. What we're learning from Naomi is, even though distress is real and it's painful, we can be honest with God and God wants to come to the rescue of his people. So whatever game you're playing with God today, just drop it. Bear your heart. Okay, so the first thing that I see is this, this call to be honest. And you kind of got to look between the lines there, but I think it's in there. This honesty, this sort of bear your honest heart before the Lord. The second thing that we see in this kind of story that I think is really powerful, that is a theme that we're going to kind of be tracing. Actually, there's two themes, and this is the first one. We'll get to the second one in a second. Is that God is sovereign. Now, what I mean by that, and I've talked about this a lot before, is that God is in absolute control of all things. There is nothing that is beyond God's control. The theological concept of God's sovereignty is that nothing is beyond God's control. All right? God is in control, and God is in and moves through all things, and he uses all things to bring about his will. It's not that God can, but it's that God does. Everything from the rain right, to the wind is under the control of God. He created all things, and all things hold together because of him. Right. Now, if Naomi and Ruth doubted anything, they never doubted this. Look, for the struggles they had, they never once doubted the fact that God was absolutely and totally in control. Naomi actually shifts her language from being God being Yahweh, right, the God of Israel, to God being El Shaddai, the Almighty One. See, they didn't doubt that the famine was part of God's correction. They didn't doubt that God's rescue, when the, fam- when the barley harvest began, was part of God's rescue. They didn't doubt that God was a part of even the tragedies that they were walking through. God's sovereignty is never questioned. None of these things were happenstance. Naomi gives credit to God for everything and calling him the Almighty One. Now, this is really important because it's a powerful biblical principle. And I find it to be one of the most comforting things in all of Scripture, that God is in control of all things. The the book of Colossians kind of expresses it really well. All things hold together because of who God is. Like, he is in all things, and all those things are knit together because of him. He is completely and totally sovereign. Now, I want you to see this with the next one because it makes a really, I think, powerful statement. Okay, so we we see that God is sovereign. We're going to see that through this book. We see it through all of Scripture. Whether we like the idea or not doesn't change the truth that it is. God is in control of all things. He is almighty. There is nothing that happens without his permission or out his knowing. The second thing that we see in this is that God's purposes are always good. Always. Now, that may not sound like much coming from someone like Naomi, but it's really important when we look at her life. It means that distress, struggle, hurt is always about God's good purpose. God is always working, and I told you this in week one, God is always working to bring about his glory and to lay foundation stones of greater joy in your life. That is how God is working. Whatever distress, whatever struggle, whatever pain, we trust in the fact that God is working for his good and to bring about greater joy in your life. Now, I find this incredibly comforting. I find this comforting because it doesn't mean that Naomi was walking through these things for naught. That the struggles and trials in my life and in her life and in your life, God is using to bring about maturity and growth in you so that you'll become more like Jesus. It means that every distress and every struggle and every issue that I have is an opportunity for God to display his glory and for God to draw me closer to himself. We talked about this a lot when we talked about the book of Philippians. We went through the whole thing. Both blessing and struggle are gifts from God. God's purposes are always good. Always. It means that whatever you're walking through, no matter how difficult it is, and I'm not making light of it, because the truth is Naomi's life was a struggle, and it was painful, and she wanted to run. And like her, you and I have been in places we wanted to hide and pull the covers up over our head and never come out and cry ourselves to sleep at night, or we've walked those incredible, difficult times where we had no answers to our questions. God, why? And God seems to be noticeably absent. I'm not making light of those struggles because they're incredibly real. But what I am saying is in the middle of them, right, 
God works even in the most difficult of times. God works. He works for his glory because his purposes are always good. And he works to bring about greater joy, foundations of greater joy in your life. This is a biblical truth that we can trace throughout the whole of scripture. God is at work. It's the theme of this story. God is at work even in the most difficult times. What we're seeing God do is move providentially behind the scenes, orchestrating these movements of redemption, even in the most difficult of times. Does that explain all the whys? No. Well, I have an answer for all the whys you've walked through, all the difficulties, all the struggles, all the fears, all the failures. No, I don't have answers for any of those. But I trust that God's purposes are good. Part of our freedom, all right, which I'm getting ready to talk about, comes from believing these two things. So we're honest with God, and then we have these two things partnered together. God is in control of all things, and God's purposes are always good. Now, if we believe those two things, those two middle things, it leads us to trusting God, and trusting God leads us to true freedom. So the third thing I want you to see is that trusting God leads to true freedom. When we believe in the sovereignty of God, God in total and absolute control of all things, and that God's purposes are always good, when we truly believe those things, it leads us to an incredible freedom like Ruth had. It leads to that freedom that says, you know what, God, because I believe you're that big, and because I believe you're in control of all things, and because I believe your purposes are always good, I can have the courage and the faith to leave my family behind, to sacrifice whatever that means, to go wherever you're calling me, to commit to whatever you're calling me to commit to, to do whatever you're calling me to do. Why? Because you are in control and your purposes are good. It leads me to a true freedom, freedom like Ruth's. You remember Ruth on that road? Naomi's saying, hey, look, go home. I have nothing for you. Life is over. My life is over. All we have is a life of widowhood and hopelessness. You really want a part of that? And you know what Ruth says? Don't tell me to leave again. Where you go, I go. Your God, right? Yahweh? Well, he's going to be my God. Somewhere along the way, I've met him and there's no turning back. And we talked about that last week. So don't tell me to leave it was a scenario that we played out last week when, when Jesus had given this sort of really difficult teaching to the disciples. And this huge crowd of people that had been following him, almost all of them got up and left. And they were muttering under their breath, John 6, how can, how can we follow this kind of teaching? It's too hard. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, hey, aren't you guys going too? And Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, kind of always says, where are we going to go? Your words alone our eternal life. You are the chosen one of God. There's no turning back, is basically what he says. When we believe that God is in absolute control and that his purposes are good, we can live a life of freedom that says, where else would I go? I wouldn't go back if I could because this is a life that you called me to and it's one of great joy and freedom. Now the reverse of that is also true, okay? That when we don't believe that God is in control of all things or that God is working for our good or that all these things are sort of just happenstance and whatever, I think it leads to bitterness and bitterness leads to blindness. Now think about this for just a moment with me. Naomi asks for a new name, call me Mara. She was bitter. But what Naomi really was was blind. And I don't blame her for it because I think we all go kind of get blindsided and blind when difficult times happen, but she was blind. Because if she could have just seen just one of the thousand ways God was working behind the scenes. If he, she just knew what was unfolding, that God was doing these incredible works, that what God was getting ready to do was redeem not only her life, but Ruth's life, and actually the entire community of Israel. That God was marching back into Bethlehem, the place where the Savior would be born. Ruth, the great-grandmother of David, the single greatest king in all of Israel's history, the one that God himself calls, is after my own heart. 
that Naomi was bringing with her the lineage of the Messiah. One of only four women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. Bathsheba, Tamar, Ruth, right? Rahab. That if Naomi could have seen that she was walking into town with the great-grandmother of the king where the Messiah would come from, that she was bringing with her the promise of redemption of not only Israel, but of the entire world. If Naomi could have just known that some 3,000 years later, a group of 120 folks would be sitting in an upper room looking at her life being moved and changed because of the faith of God and what God's faithfulness in her life. Of course, she couldn't see those things. But an unwillingness to think that God's purposes are always bigger than what we know led her to bitterness and bitterness led her to blindness. So she comes in and she says, quit calling me lovely. Call me bitter. My life's a joke. Meanwhile, God behind the scenes is kind of welling up one of the greatest movements in all of scripture to bring about his own son to redeem your life and to redeem my life. Now, here's the thing. We can end with this. When I refuse or I don't believe or truly believe that God is in control of all things and his purposes are good, it leads to bitterness. I mean, really, is this what this life has? This is about as good as it gets, huh? God's hand is against me and it's against me and it's against me. Fine. I'm bitter. I'm resentful. I'm not going back to church. I'm not going to even mess with it anymore. Leads us to bitterness and leads us to blindness and we fail to see the way that God is working around us. But we say, God, I know you're that big. I don't quite understand it all, but I know that you're that big. And I know that even though I'm struggling, you are working for your good purpose to bring about your glory and to bring about greater joy in my life. I trust that. So God, help me in the middle of this struggle see your purpose. It changes everything. Be honest with God. Cast it out there. God's not surprised. Say it. Ask him to change your heart and rescue you. Ask him to break your old way of thinking and to shape your new mind. Trust that God is in control of all things. He is almighty. He is the El Shaddai. And trust that his purposes are good. Even in the middle of your distress and struggle, God's purposes are always good. He works for his glory always to lay foundation stones for greater joy in your life. Trust that his purposes are good. And believing those two things leads to trust. And trust leads to true freedom. Don't be fall victim to the lie that says I can work to trust. Trust is all about knowledge. It's not about doing. Don't believe that. Trust is about knowing who God is and that he is always at work and that he is in absolute and total control. Don't become bitter and blind. Instead, in the middle of struggle and trust, we learn from this book to say, God, you are. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these moments to gather here. We thank you that you are bigger than all that we know and that Lord these these sweeping things that we learn from this book are they sound so good on paper but they're so hard to truly live but God I believe that they are bigger than than anything I believe that they are more real than I can even imagine and so God help me personally to be honest with you when I fear when I fail when I run when I hide when I want to just yell and cuss like God just help me be honest with you Because I think being honest with you, you begin to reveal your purposes to us. God, help me trust that you are bigger than all that I know and see. That my limited human scope is such a shadow of your work. God, help me trust that your purposes are always good. Even in the darkest times of my life, your purposes are always good. And that, God, you are always moving in and around me to bring me to a greater place of joy in you. 
And God, help me to trust those things so that I can find true freedom that says, I want to live like Ruth. I want to live like the disciples that say, what am I going to do? Go back now? No, you are my life. You are everything and you are good and I give it all to you. Lord, we lay these things at your feet. We ask you as we close in worship to penetrate our hearts with those truths to make them real and evident. God, help us come to a place where we say you are everything and you are good. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the way that you're moving in us. Hear our cry. Hear the cry of our hearts as we close our time in worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship.